Hey beautiful soul, this is the Menopause Coach Podcast with me, your host, Adele Johnston. I'm helping you create a vibrant life of joy and happiness without your menopause stealing your personal power and sass. Together, we're making menopause mainstream. Subjectively, people have the belief it affects performance. Objectively, when we bring people into the lab and we do tests and we test their strength, power, whatever it may be in the different stages of the menstrual cycle, the body of evidence as a whole shows that the menstrual cycle phase does not have an effect. Welcome back to another episode of the Menopause Coach Podcast. I am your host as always, Adele Johnston, and very excited today that I have a super powerful guest with us, and I just know that you are going to take so much away from this. So what I would encourage you to do, and I don't normally do this with the episodes, but I would encourage that you go and get a pen and paper. You're going to need it. So I'm introducing to you David Nolan, who is a lecturer at the Technological University of the Shannon in Ireland. He's a PhD researcher in Dublin City University and he's a sports scientist and coach and founder of Synapse Performance. So I think, you know, if you're as excited as I am by that bio and that profile, you're going to be in for an absolute treat. So David, welcome to the podcast and thank you for your time today. Pleasure, Adele. I look forward to chatting. When we first met, we actually met at an event in Dublin, didn't we? And you had done this amazing presentation around the female cycles. So really into kind of the menstrual cycle and the female health of that. And I was just absolutely captivated by what you were presenting, how you were showing it because you're not a traditional, and forgive me for saying this if anybody's a researcher and a scientist listening to this, but you are not in that traditional bracket. Oh, I'm hitting myself badly with a stick here of science researchers. The way that you show up and the way that you present your findings and materials was just really captivating and inspiring. So I had to speak with you after it, and we had some really detailed chats in, in DMs. And I was just like, this would be an amazing chat on the podcast. So today we are going to cover a topic that may take arms and legs as we chat. But realistically, we want to chat about the female cycles and the importance of being aware of what those changes mean for us as women. So David, I just want to jump into this one with you and appreciate, do you want to maybe start by sharing a little bit about you and what you're focusing on right now. My research as a whole, it's quite broad, but it focuses on the fundamental question of do males and females need to exercise differently? Do they respond differently to training and to exercise training? And I'm more biased towards strength, resistance training, kind of more gym-based training. So that's the broad question. And my PhD focuses through the lens of women's rugby. So they're, they're kind of the subjects we use, but the questions themselves are broadly applicable. And when you investigate that and go down that rabbit hole, and it is a very complex rabbit hole to go down, you'll have to then address some of the other questions around the unique demands or the nuances of the, the female athlete. And they are, does the menstrual cycle phase have an impact on performance? Do hormonal contraceptives have an impact on performance? So you're trying to understand these questions fundamentally, and then you're building upon those. Well, if they do have an impact, what level of impact they have? How many people do they impact? 
does does that actually translate to well you need to do something different in the gym you need to train differently maybe it does maybe it doesn't so it's that's broadly where i'm investigating all these nuances around the female athlete but ultimately the main aim is that we can better support both female athletes that want to perform at the elite level but also those who are just simply looking to be a bit healthier and go to gym that do females need to um, train differently to males because for example we know that we see large sex differences and inequalities in physical activity levels between males and females if we look at the physical activity guidelines we see that a higher proportion of females do not achieve those guidelines it's even a higher proportion when we look at the strength training guidelines we know that a higher proportion of females do not achieve those when we look at sports participation, more males participate than females. When we look at dropout rate, we see higher rates of dropout in females compared to males. So let's try to understand, well, is it a case that females feel under-supported, that they're not reaching their potential um, in sport, and that's the reason that they drop out? Or what are the, the factors that cause this? Because if we can understand the factors that cause it, maybe we can put in some action plans to hopefully keep more women in sport, keep more women engaging in physical activity, living a, a healthier life. Obviously, I'm down a rabbit hole in, in one way, looking at the complex questions and looking at, say, menstrual cycle contraceptives, but it can even be very common sense and fundamental. It's, it's funny that one of the reasons we see, say, female dropout peak in adolescence it's due to um, some concerns around the menstrual cycle that women may have in their adolescence and one of them is we know excessive or heavy bleeding is a common symptom of the menstrual cycle well most sports team-based sports what color are the shorts they wear they're white um, so this is puts another level of um, worry upon teenage girls participating in sport we see Changing the shorts that teams wear to navy or black has an impact on dropout levels because now girls are less conscious of, well, if I have a heavy bleed, it won't be as noticeable or um, it won't be as, as obvious. So there's real simplistic things that we can change in terms of what we do at a societal level and a structural level. Um, and then I tend to be a bit more down the other end of the spectrum looking at the kind of the physiological end of stuff and the, the, the lab-based stuff. But I would like, I suppose I speak on and advocate right along the spectrum. So when I talk on podcasts, yes, I don't mind discussing the, the science, but I don't think that we should become all consumed with the complex end of stuff because it is alluring. We do think that that's where uh, we might make some gains, but really the fundamental um, changes that we can make at a societal level around perception, around the narrative, around stuff like the shorts, around normalizing strength and conditioning and training for young females, giving those the same supports and the same structures that are afforded to their male counterparts can also make a difference. So I suppose that's a whirlwind introduction to what I do and, and what I'm generally about in terms of my research and my communication. I'm literally sitting here going, oh, I've got so many questions. Hats off to you for, for going down this one. Like you've said, it is a big rabbit hole. And I think that there's probably a reason why there hasn't been a lot of female athletes and, you know, hormone led res um, research, respectively of the fact that males are easier, I would imagine, males are easier to research. Yeah, like we see that within sports science. So people have this banality that to throw out that 
or there is no research on females, which that's simply not true, but they are significantly underrepresented within sports science research as a whole. If we look at the body of literature, about a third of participants in all our sports science studies across the, the history of sports science have been female. Now, that's hundreds of thousands, if not a few million participants in total. But compared to the males, they are vastly underrepresented. Now, when we get into the areas that I'm interested in more so around strength, power, hypertrophy, that number's even less. And when we look at the elite level in terms of female, the number, obviously, elite by definition is a small subsection of any population. So it's going to be much smaller, but we have little there. So I suppose... What we do know is we do have research. There is stuff to base um, our hypotheses off, but it's the quality of that research has been poor to date because, like you said, when you have female participants, you have this confounding variable of the menstrual cycle. You're trying to control for it. And it is difficult to control for, but more so it's logistically and financially difficult to control for. So if we run a study where we want to look at the effect of the menstrual cycle phase, In our ideal world, we need to confirm the phase of the menstrual cycle by hormone analysis. Mm -hmm. That is the gold standard. If you take that uh, to, we have an issue in any of the female researchers are underpowered is what we call it. And that just means that there wasn't enough people in the study to, to come up with a strong conclusion. So if we need to have a study that's strongly powered, so it has a large enough sample size, there's enough people taking part, and we're using gold standard hormone analysis to confirm the menstrual cycle phase. Well, for a typical study, that I don't know, that could be anywhere in the region, 60, 80,000 pounds plus just to mm-hmm. do the bloods analysis, which unless we have large funding behind us, most of our research studies, we can't do that. So when people are overly critical of, well, look, they didn't confirm hormone analysis. Um, mm-hmm. I'm like, no, they didn't. But Probably they couldn't. They just didn't have the financial backing to do so. So they went with the next best thing, which is a combination of um, ovulation sticks along with basal temperature and um, calendar, just counting the days. You triangulate those three, you get a good estimation, but there's always the, well, what if? Because mm-hmm. you don't know the hormone concentration. So that's why it's difficult to correlate hormonal concentration with performance sometimes. So that's one reason. Um, and then logistically, you know, if you are going to look at two variables, you want them to be within the same menstrual cycle phase. So if if that's a male you're doing, doing week one and week two is fine. You can bring someone in two weeks and get the measure, which uh, female is twice as long. You have to do month on month. So, you know, when you're time constrained and financially constrained, it's been a case that people have deferred and, well, we'll just do it in males. It's, it is easier. Mm-hmm. Um, you also have to look at the societal structure around universities over the past few decades in terms of you go back to the 60s 70s 80s there was especially in the sport and exercise sciences domain it was male dominant in terms of the students that were there the academics that were there and in academia we often use what we call a convenience sample and that is a fancy term for anyone who is close by when you're in a university those who are close by are students Mm -hmm. so if you have a structure that it's predominantly male researchers in a male department and most of the students in the university are male when you score to recruit you're going to recruit more males than than females naturally enough Um, and especially if it's something like resistance training exercise based and we have these inequalities if you're trying to recruit people to partake in a weight training study 
Well, if you're in the mid-90s in a university, you probably don't have that many females that are weight training that would be able to volunteer for the study even if they wanted. So you compound all those factors over years and you lead to this, this schism of more males, especially in the sport and exercise science domain, um, as participants. So females are not non-existent in sports science research. They're just significantly underrepresented. And the female research that has been done to date has been by and large of kind of low to mediocre quality. So for mm-hmm. us to make strong recommendations around menstrual cycle con- hormone contraceptive use, it's not that we, because people call it, oh, we need more female research. That is true, but we need more high quality female research. Just tokenism, adding of female participants, tokenistic female studies will not cut it because we have enough of those. We mm-hmm. need high quality studies that we can start to really understand some of the nuances that may be there. It is vastly complex. So thank you. I think just having that insider information on what it actually takes to pull all of this together to make it to make it really abundant level research right we don't we we can carry out research I could carry out research but is it going to be that gold standard that you allude to no so there's no point so I think where we get to with all of this is there are people out there like you who are really focusing in on that female-led cycle the performance that that can have you've already talked a bit about how you're looking at the hormonal contraceptives and the impacts that that can have on female performance. You've chatted then again about the hormonal changes and what impact that can have. And, you know, it really opened my eyes actually when you talk there about even just the color of the shorts and the, and the sport. I'd never thought about that before. And we had a little offline chat before we hit record and I'd shared with you that I was very, very athletic when I was younger. I was in all the teams, you know, the hockey, the basketball, you name it, the running. And I used to pull out quite a lot on my menstrual cycle because I bled very heavily for the first four days. And it wasn't even so much the physical. So the physical side of the body would have coped. And I always knew that if I went for the run or I played the the sport, that I actually felt better after it. But it was the psychology element of I'm bleeding heavily, I'm feeling drained, and probably something you come up against and and recognize as well is that a lot of these females can go through um, periods of anemia. So with those heavy, heavy blood losses, I was constantly personally battling with being so fatigued and being diagnosed with anemia. So there's probably elements to this where we think about, what, well, where does this pull into what I do in the perimenopause space, menopause as, as a kind of overarching title. But if we think about perimenopause, and you and I have chatted about this offline a bit, this is the stage in any woman's life. And we don't have a, a, a date in the year for each of the ladies. We don't say that as soon as you hit 41, you are now perimenopausal. I was 36 when I noticed that it was happening because I'm so in tune with my body. I recognize the changes. So when we think about this, I'm just relating this to what I know from my own experience and from conversations with all of my clients. What tends to happen when we kind of enter into that perimenopause stage and our bodies start to change, yeah, both in the kind of physiological and the emotional, if we look at it from that perspective, and the mental health. I actually was bikini competitor, a double Scottish champion, 
you know, placed really well in the 2019 competitions that I was doing. But afterwards, I never recovered from those hormonal changes. I vastly noticed that my ability to train changed. I incredibly noticed fatigue, which meant that the psychology of getting the trainers on and getting out to train when I was a 60 a weeker before became really challenging, even just to hit three days of training. So there's probably where you mentioned about there's so many nuances to the hormonal research and the the kind of factors that are there. When we look at a woman who is in a heavy bleed, and we know that in perimenopause that can happen, any period changes, women can go from being quite light bleeders to extreme heavy bleeding and saturating clothing, bed linen. That's not really a conducive environment to say, well, I'm just going to go and jump into the gym and train and do squats and, you know, lunge my way across the floor. You just don't. So I suppose that the kind of conversational piece in all of this is, how can women optimize training when we know that it's so important, even more so in perimenopause years, because we want to protect those bones. We want to make sure that through resistance training, we are protecting our skeletal mass. We want to make sure that we're also supporting our muscle volume, right? For sarcopenia issues that we can face in latter years. So I suppose the question, the conversation on all of this, I'd love to chat with you is around how can we become a bit more optimized in our training once we notice that our hormones are maybe just not our best friend right now? That's an interesting question and and there's a lot to unpack there. And I suppose I'll put my um my biases if I if I can call it that up front mm-hmm. that the focus of my research is the premenopausal state. Um so I won't put myself forward as any um expert on peri or, or postmenopausal state. Um so I, I generally for the moment anyway my research career focus more um around the premenopausal state. Mm-hmm. Um now there is at the she research group that we have that's focused on the female um athlete and health in in that loan we do have a a menopause actual focus group and we have some fantastic and um, postdoctoral researchers beginning projects very soon there but i suppose one thing that is important is just at the outset is what you said there that we do acknowledge the importance of exercise in the peri and postmenopausal state and mm-hmm. particularly resistance training because that's something obviously I, I advocate very, very strongly is resistance training for health across the entire lifespan. But in particular, when we get into that peri and postmenopausal state and we see this large reduction in estrogen levels, well, what that what accompanies that is a decreased ability to utilize um, vitamin D and cal- calcium, essentially. And we see a decrease in skeletal muscle mass as we age, but more so the we see that in both males and females. The big difference we see between males and females is a massive decrease in bone mineral density or the strength of your bones in the peri- and postmenopausal state. And this is due to this uh, reduced estrogen or estrogen when we talk about exercises that increase bone mineral density that make your bone stronger, they have to be load bearing exercises. And there is no form of exercise that will lead to better increases in bone strength than resistance based training. So yes, running, swimming, all these things, cycling, they will help, but really their bones respond to 
compressive loads on them that whether that's a bar on your back a machine pushing back against you where the muscles are contracting very hard they're working very hard and we have this stress and compression upon the bone that will lead to increased bone density or at the very um, least it will slow the decline of of, of bone mineral density because if you don't do it we see the risk of osteopenia, osteoporosis, really increase significantly in the postmenopausal state. And we can end up with what people would anecdotally coin um, brittle bones. And, you know, when we talk about quality of life um, in, in later years, yes, people are living longer, but do we want people to live longer if the quality of life doesn't match it? And where we tend to see a massive decrease in people's quality of life when they get older is they have a fall and they might break a hip and they become bed-bound or chair-bound or immobile. And then it, you end up with a vicious cycle where someone gets weak, frail, maybe from not exercising. Because they're weak and frail and their balance is poor, they fall, they break a bone, they become immobilized, and now they're in this cycle of, well, now they're immobilized, they're not exercising, even to a lesser degree, they become weaker, more frail, and this cycle continues, and the quality of life really plummets. So strength training is so important for people right throughout the lifespan, but in particularly in that peri- and postmenopausal state. So that's mm-hmm. one part that's that's very important. The yeah. second part of that question in terms of, well, can we optimize our exercise around our, our hormone concentrations? This, again, is, is complex because... When we look at the evidence as a whole, we see this interesting dichotomy in the literature that when we look at the subjective research, so to understand this, we need to understand, well, does the menstrual cycle phase have an impact of performance? When we survey women athletes, we get strong reports where a high percentage of people say, yes, the menstrual cycle phase, I have symptoms. I feel it impacts my performance. I get bloating, I feel tired, lethargic, heavy bleeding, whatever the associated symptoms. And there's a a large list, low back pain, headaches, migraines. There's so many symptoms that can be attributed to the menstrual cycle phase. So people report, not everyone, it has to be noted that it is individual, but subjectively people have the belief it affects performance, both as athletes and then coaches believe it too. Objectively, when we bring people into the lab and we do tests, and we test their strength, power, whatever it may be in the different stages of the menstrual cycle, the body of evidence as a whole shows that the menstrual cycle phase does not have an effect. Now, so you have this disagreement between the subjective and the objective. Now, what this says to me or my reading of the literature or my interpretation is that, well, the quality of the research we know has been poor to date, so maybe we just need better quality research to board out. That's one theory and I would agree with that but what it says to me more so is when we're in the lab we're trying to find a group average we're trying to find well on average does the level of hormone concentration impact performance or phase Mm -hmm. but what we observe and what we know is there is huge variation between individuals some people are strongly affected. Some people aren't affected at all. They wouldn't know what stage of the menstrual cycle they're in. They couldn't tell you what phase in terms of their performance. Some people say they have a big dip, we observe, in, say, the luteal phase compared to the follicular. So we see that everyone is individual, big differences between individuals. 
But we also see what we call intra-individual differences or intra-cycle differences. So one cycle to the other is very different. So no two menstrual cycles are the same between individuals and within an individual. So you have this huge level of variation, variability between people and between cycle to cycle. So what you're going to end up with is I don't think you can strongly say, well, if you're in the follicular phase, this is what you're going to feel like. This is how mm. you perform. This is how you should exercise, therefore. Because yeah. there is this theory about phase-based training, and that's based upon the physiological theory of, well, in the follicular phase, we see estrogen levels are high. Estrogen is an anabolic hormone. It seems to um, lead to better muscle recovery, better strength. There's this theory that you should be stronger, recover better and make better gains. In the luteal phase, you have higher levels of progesterone, which is anti-estrogenic. You should then be recovering less, have poor strength, poor performance. So this idea, well, train harder in your follicular phase, train easier in the luteal phase, or change the volumes, and you'll get better gains. The problem with that is that's based upon physiological theory and makes sense from a logical perspective. But that's based upon a textbook view of what the menstrual cycle is. But we know that no woman really follows the textbook view of it, that it's so, um, the levels of hormones vary between individuals so much for the same given stage of the menstrual cycle. From cycle to cycle, they vary. So that may be bore out in the research as a better way to train, but there's no strong evidence to support that as it's done so if people are making these recommendations of you should train this way in the follicular phase you should eat this way in the follicular phase there is no strong evidence to support any rationale for phase-based training or nutritional strategies at a group level we can't make the recommendations and i i find it at a certain level insulting that we have people maybe they don't realize their own dissonance but we have people that say oh Women aren't small men. We need more female-focused research and very strong on the feminist viewpoint in terms of research. Then in the same brush, we'll turn around and label all women or tar all women with the same brush saying, well, you're a woman, therefore in the follicular phase, this is how you feel, this is that. I'm like, you can't, it's individual. Now, I've got to wrap it up and make it applied now. So that's my interpretation of literature. But what it also is quite interesting to get into then well, if in the lab, objectively, you know, the muscle is able to perform as well, their, their performance is there. Well, is it the case of what we do know is when your hormones shift throughout the menstrual cycle, your perception change, it alters psychology. We know it alters our mood, our mood state, our psychology. Mm. What we do see relatively consistently is your perceived rate of exertion. So how hard you find things is more difficult or is altered throughout the menstrual cycle. So it could be a case that in one phase, say the luteal phase, your body is still able to perform maybe as well, but you perceive it to be harder. Mm. You just think it feels harder. Now, that's not to dismiss and try to say, oh, well, you're saying it's all in their head. No, our psychology and physiology are intertwined. So if something feels harder, well, then for all intents and purposes, it is harder. That's why it will lead to an um, inability to sustain the same pace for as long because you just can't or sustain the same um, effort level. So they're kind of some of the factors or reasons that it could be. It could be the physiology driving the psychology. Now, there is underlying mechanisms that, yes, the hormonal concentration could be having a physiological effect at the level of the, the muscle, uh, at the neuromuscular system. 
But again, when you see so much variation and variability between individuals and between cycles within an individual, it's hard to make any blanket recommendations. What we can recommend, the best current practice for anyone listening that wants to kind of alter their um, training around their menstrual cycle is to learn their own menstrual cycle and get to know it. And what I mean by that is start tracking your own menstrual cycle Mm -hmm. each month. So whether it be in an app, but start to track it for three to six months and identify patterns. And when I say start to track it, how do you feel in each phase? How did training feel? You're tracking, is it regular? Is it um, present and regular? In terms of, okay, does the bleeding change much month on month? Do you see that um, the amount of pads or say tampons or whatever it may be, you have changes month to month to give mm-hmm. you an indication of the level of bleeding that is going on. Yeah. So what you're trying to do is build up an individualized picture of your own cycle. Try to identify any patterns that may be going on. Now, there may not be any. Some, as I said, some individuals, there is no distinguishable pattern. But if it's a case you're, you're noticing, God, every month I have bad PMS and I feel sluggish in the gym when I'm four or five days out from my period and I have heavy bleeding. Well then, okay, for you, it probably makes sense to put the more difficult or high volume bits of your training in the follicular phase, in the ovulatory phase. And then as you're coming into the period to scale down and maybe change up training that it's a bit less stressful Mm. or that you are, you know, taking on a bit more food, you're taking on a bit more caffeine, whatever may be the strategies Mm. are, are, can be a multitude or that you're programming in more sleep or whatever it may be, but that you realize that this pattern exists and I can put in an individual coping strategy. That's pretty much the best we can do is that, you learn your own cycle, you try to identify patterns, and if needed, you put in individualized coping strategies. That's the best recommendation, and that's where the current state is at. Anyone that is advocating blanket recommendations based upon menstrual cycle phase in terms of training or nutrition are one of two things. They're either a charlatan that know they're wrong in what they're saying, but they're trying to make some money off it, or they are ignorant to the complexity of the physiology and endocrinology that goes on because a lot of people will just read a short little textbook about this is the menstrual cycle this is what a normal menstrual cycle is this is what estrogen does this is what progesterone does and come up with a very reductionist and simplistic view of how you should train based upon that yes and you know i'm nodding away if you if you guys could see this. Obviously, you can't as a podcast, but if you could see this, I'm nodding away and I'm just like, oh my God, yes, because we do know, we know those online coaches out there. And this is not about calling anybody out. It's not what we do, but it's appreciating that exactly what David's just said here, the research and his expert opinion based on all of this is that we don't structure everybody the same. Everybody is unique. We are individual And actually, one of the conversations that we were having prior to hit and record on this was around how we should all, every single person, every one of you listening to this right now, everyone that you're going to share this with, because it's been so phenomenal and insightful, is understanding that we should understand our own bodies. 
Okay, this is not about the medical professionals having to take on the ownership of this is what's wrong with you and fix it. We actually get to be very proactive and loving and compassionate towards ourselves. And where we do have that connection between psychology and physiology being intertwined, so, so, so true. When we think about when something happens, a thought, a single thought can control our ability to respond whether we respond with, I want to jump into my bed with a tub of ice cream and just put the covers over my head for the next two hours, three hours, four days, or whether we say I am going out a walk or I'm taking a response route where you, David, had highlighted those three steps and one of them being identifying your coping strategies, your tools and your toolbox. This is on us. It's on you. It is on you listening to this that you understand how your body functions All right. So the most loving thing that you can take away from anything you have heard today is be responsible for your own body and knowing your own health. All right. Knowing that actually, if you go and run some blood panels, please do not order Dutch testing. Please do not do the saliva testing for your hormones. Please do not order finger prick tests that come through the post. Okay. Complete waste of money, irrelevant, not going to give you what you need. You know how you feel. Go with how you are feeling. And I'm sure David will absolutely agree with me on this. But when we run bloods, when we do any female blood hormone profiling, we've got to remember those hormones are not just in your blood sample. Those hormones are in tissues, they are in organs, they are in a cellular level. Okay, so unless we are taking little snippets and snapshot biopsies from all of these things and looking at them under microscopes, your doctor will not do that, by the way. And if we want to appreciate where our hormones are sitting, we've got to remember that. Please visualize for those of you that are dart players or that know what a dartboard is. You're trying to hit that bullseye in the middle, that red dot, but that bullseye is moving constantly up, down, left and right, and you are just throwing. So you're going to get a snapshot in time, but that snapshot in time of your blood results may not give you what you were expecting. It does not mean for our ladies here who are in their, I don't know if I am perimenopausal or not stage, your bloods will not give you that diagnosis or that confirmation. Okay, so please get familiar with your body, understand your cycle. David's three main points here were track your cycle. Okay, do that consistently for three to six months. Get very familiar with your body. What do you notice? What do you feel? How is your mood? How is your sleep? Health markers, ladies. Think of your health markers. How does your skin look? Yeah, how are you showing up in life? Are you feeling motivated? Or do you notice that in certain stages, those kind of more mindset and psychology style impacts are becoming, actually, I know I shouldn't take on a big project between that window of my cycle because it's when I'm feeling vulnerable. Yeah, I'm not going to show up well. So be aware of all of this. Understand your flow, your level of bleeding. And a note on this for those ladies that are in the depths of menopause right now, you are going to know that when you enter into period changes, you may experience very, very, very heavy blood flow. I work with a lot of ladies that experience this, that saturate clothing, that saturate bed linen. And I want you to know that you do not just need to accept that. Okay, that is not what we would deem to be a normal experience of a menstrual flow. We don't ever want to bleed that heavily. So please reach out to your GP, menopause support or medical provider for help with that. And then the second part that David mentioned in his top tips were identify patterns. 
So you're almost doing your own research into your body. Okay, do the work three to six months, identify patterns, get familiar with yourself. And number three was identify what your coping strategies are, your tools for your toolbox. Okay, it might be a walk. It might be adjusting your training patterns, but it's certainly not putting yourself into a neglective state and just ignoring what's happening. David, listen, I could talk to you for ages on this. Like this is just such, it's such a topic that just lights me up. I have so many questions. We've identified and discussed a hell of a lot of stuff today. I think it's really exciting that you are you are leading in this space. You can tell that you're super, super knowledgeable and very compassionate in the approach that you take. Um, equally with that kind of no bullshit response of there are going to be charlatans out there. that are going to be people that try to monetize on hormones. I make a very bold statement when I say this, but I don't believe that anyone is a hormone specialist. Okay, even endocrinology wise, we can get it wrong in that space. We don't ever become specialists in such a complex area that's always moving. And certainly with, from a female perspective, no two females are the same. And we've talked about that. So big, bold statement from me. But from the perspective that we've chatted around different nuances, we've chatted the research, which is really exciting. We understand that you're moving into and have a menopause focus group who are doing a bit more in that space, which is excellent. But from our perspective of what I find a lot of women in their, well, you probably come up against this as well in your um, synapse performance coaching, but where we want to go into this, I need to lose body fat or I want weight loss as part of my journey. I face this with about 97% of women that reach out. What is your stance on this being a, ladies, let's not look at it as, weight loss and, and fat loss, but rather we compassionately will adopt strategies like resistance training to stimulate our muscle growth, to you know build upon that muscle because we need it now, not just from a composition perspective that a lot of young women and women want, but also from a, you need this for health and mobility in later years, because we do know that when our estrogen or estrogen levels take such a decline throughout those 10 to 12 years of perimenopause that women experience the risk, the higher risk, one in two developing osteoporosis in postmenopausal years, one in three having an osteo-related fracture that the hard, hard hitting fact on this is can be fatal for a lot of ladies. So if you could leave us with one big suggestion, this is putting you on the spot now, what would you from your knowledge, from your experience on what you're working on, we've covered tracking cycle, be aware of what works for you. But what would you recommend if someone is starting out in the space of, we've said load bearing exercises, compressive loads, contracting those muscles, you know, resistance training. For a lot of ladies, it can be very daunting to think, oh my God, I've got to walk into a gym and lift weights. What would you advise would be a really good starting block for someone who is listening to this thinking, I need to face into this. I have had a massive awakening that I need to now do these exercises and load bear. How would they start? A reductionist answer would be to just start anywhere because as with anything, 
by definition, when we start something that we haven't done before, we will be shit at it. Mm-hmm. And that is just the reality of anything we do. Lifting weights, strength training, performing the movements is a skill. And a skill like any other is a learnt ability. So you need to learn how to do it. So obviously having someone that can teach you to do it is important. Mm. When we look at some of the barriers um, to resistance training and strength training that females identify, it's the typical ones. I don't think they're female specific, but we probably see a higher prevalence of them in females. It is fear of um, looking stupid in the gym, looking like they don't know what they're doing. It's the... um, it's the fact that they don't believe that they'll be competent at. They don't know how to do it. Um, and it's lack of social support. So in an ideal world, you're going to go with a friend, with a training partner to a decent level coach who will show you how to do it. And you'll train and perform those exercises in a, an open and welcoming environment. Because the gym can be a very intimidating place. As someone, and again, I'm probably one of those, I, I'm a power lifter. Um, so I'm one of those people in the gym that <laughs> when you see me training, I probably don't look the friendliest and I'm one of those that's probably causing some uh, intimidation to other individuals. But most of the other people, it's a cliche. Anyone that's in the gym, they don't really care about you. They're not taking any notice of you whatsoever. And if they are, it's a quick glance and then they're back to being obsessed by themselves. So we build up in our head this perception of everyone is looking at me and uh, I'm going to look stupid. I can tell you there's so many other people that are looking stupid in that gym that you will blend in and no one will notice because it's still one thing that people, a lot of people don't know what they're doing. What I will say, I've talked about the importance of why resistance training needs to be done, so I won't go over that. But I think what you said, a lot of us can start exercising with this weight loss focused mindset and i have no issue with the the goal of reducing weight and reducing body fat because we we see nearly this revolt against it in recent times where it's fat phobic to acknowledge someone is overweight or to have a goal to reduce body fat well we know that adiposity so excess body fat Mm -hmm. it's a negative risk factor for our health that it is not good for health of being overweight or carrying excess body fat especially in the midriff is negative to our health so to have to aim to reduce that as a long-term goal by all means it will lead to an improvement in your health and quality of life now i think the the shift though is when we become hyper focused on that is our only goal and we lead to orthorexic behaviors because Mm -hmm. that because that are negative very negative self-talk and being almost abusive to oneself because of that doesn't isn't a good a healthy state to be in so to have that goal and to um can facilitate an environment be it through your nutrition and training that leads to that adaptation of reduced body weight and reduced body fat that's perfectly fine and it's a goal that many of us should probably have because we know the prevalence of overweight and obesity but what i think should be the focus though of your mindset is Focus on what you can do and what you will be able to do in terms of it is empowering to get stronger, Mm -hmm. to be able to go in there and instead of when I am training or I'm training, I'm doing this because I'm it's to get the weight off me. It's I'm going in there to get stronger and I'm my environment that I set up is to I sleep well and I eat well so that I can get stronger because when I get stronger, I'm able to do more things. I feel better. I'm able to, you know, experience life greater because being stronger, you're able to, you know, 
um, do activities, you're able to hike up a hill, you have the leg strength to hike, to get out into nature, you may have the the strength to do other things that were um, not available to you. So you'll be able to have a higher quality of life mm -hmm. because your body is capable of doing more. Too many of us can be, we go for a run and we're able to only run 500 meters and you're like, Geez, oh, I, 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 I was only, I can only do this and mm -hmm. then I'm out of breath. It's like, well, no, you were able to do that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You were able to do what you couldn't and next time. So it's all about what I'm able to do now and what do I need to do to be able to do more and to progress and not just kind of how you frame it every time is like, God, I was only able to lift that much today. It's like, mm, yeah. no, you were able to lift that much today. You know what I mean? You were capable of doing that today. And the next day you'll be capable of more. Next month you'll be capable of more again. Yes. So it's, you're training to perform and to progress and the environment you set up, your sleep, nutrition, stress, social structure, all facilitates towards your body being able to do more rather than focusing on mm -hmm. this is what's wrong with my body and what I'm trying to get rid of. So it's what you're trying to gain rather than what you're trying to get rid of should be your focus. Oh, I love that. So bloody powerful. And I completely agree with you. You know, the, the whole fat loss piece, it's yes, it's needed. And if we need to do some, you know, dietary interventions for that, but it's also not just about the food, it's about the movement, it's about the mindset. And it's like you say, it's all the factors. I love that. Thank you so, so much. I know that this will resonate with so many people listening to this right now thinking, I needed this. I needed to hear this. I needed to know that it gets to be easy, but it just starts with me and a decision to start. Yeah. And like David said, you will probably be pretty shit at it the first time you do it. And that's okay. It's okay. You can start using body weight to begin with. Perfect your movements. Feel the flow. Use mirrors. Make sure that you're not curving spines and, you know, engaging core. People will say to you all the time, engage your core. And you think, what the bloody hell is that? How do I do that? Okay, it's learning these foundations to be able to then progress. So think about anything in life. You're very, very, very rarely ever going to start something new and just master it. Yeah, it's about the journey. And I love how you framed that, David. I love just how you've used all that. It's a very, very high vibe, high energy and positive spin around just getting to feel your way into it. What do you enjoy doing? Yeah, me personally, I hate squatting. I have such long legs. It is just torture for me to do that. Whereas I love leg press. So we swap it out. We still get the same resistance movements. I just don't need to place a bar on the top of my back, on my shoulders, where I'm very bony and get that discomfort. So this, ladies, is all about empowerment for you. You get to make the choice, the decisions and take the action. If you choose not to take the action, that is your choice. Remember that. All right. You can forever sit and think, oh, I wished I'd done that. Yeah. If you only manage to run one lamppost to the next on your first run, then try and push yourself to two lampposts next time. It gets to be that easy. It gets to be that quick, but you need to take that inspired action and move. So David, thank you so much. I know that everyone listening to this will definitely be connecting with you. So where can they find you if they would love to come and follow along what you are doing? So on Instagram, it's Synapse Performance. So S-Y-N-A-P-S-E, Performance. On Twitter, at David underscore Synapse. Um, and then I suppose if you just, um, synapseperformance.e is the website. But if you Google David Nolan and 
strength or sports science or something i'll pop up you'll find me somewhere on google anyway i love that you're a googleable name you have to put in the sports science because there's a apparently a, an actor and a, an elite swimmer by david nolan as well and <laughs> I, I haven't outranked those guys just yet <laughs> yes i love it you're up there you're up there we will make sure that as always the links to find david are in the show notes so it makes your life super easy you can just scroll down and click right through It has been phenomenal. Thank you so much for your life currency today. It is super respected, David. And I'm just enjoying following along with your work. I will no doubt drop into your DMs and ask how the menopause focus group is going as you're moving through it. So I know we'll stay connected. So thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you very much. I truly hope this episode has sparked something vibrant inside of you. I ask only one thing. To help keep these episodes coming, please subscribe and share with another in your life. That's how we reach more women worldwide and we help them step into their power. Because together we are working to remove any of the stigma and taboo that surrounds menopause. This does not need to be a daunting, a scary, a taboo time in anyone's life. So together, let's make menopause mainstream.